Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from AltaSpeed Technologies, the show that puts you, the listener, in the driver's seat because you are the content. The phone lines are open to be a part of the program. It's a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. Give me a call and we'll have a conversation about your tech questions or business in tech questions. Linux advocate, above all else, small business owner, and now host of the only show centered around you, the listener. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. My name is Noah Chalaya. Headline, ARS Technica, Ubuntu Unity is dead. Desktop will switch back to GNOME next year. Six years after making Unity the default user interface on the Ubuntu desktop, Canonical is giving up on the project. And will switch back to the default Ubuntu desktop GNOME next year. Canonical is also ending development of Ubuntu software for phones and tablets. Wow, what a way to kick off episode two of the Ask Noah show. Without question, this is the biggest news Linux used that we've had in a long, long time. And guys, I would love to get your thoughts on this. one 855 450 No, first things first, before we get too far, too deep into this, if the words Ubuntu, Unity, GNOME, or GNOME, and Canonical sound like I'm speaking a different language to you, let me give you the 30-second cliff notes. You know when you sit down at a computer that it's a Windows computer. You know that it's Windows because that you see the start menu. You recognize the way the icons are arranged, the way the windows look, the color and style of the windows, the minimize and close buttons. If you have a Mac, you know that you don't have a start bar. Instead, you have a dock. You know that you have the finder window and that the spot, you have the spotlight search. That visual layout, that way that you interact with the computer is known as the desktop environment. Now, Linux, unlike macOS or Windows, recognizes that the personal computer is, in fact, personal. And it can be, if allowed, a reflection of our own unique personality. It's not a one-size-fits-all approach. Different people have different workflows. They have different preferences. So we need to have desktop environments that accommodate those varying needs. Now, GNOME used to be the desktop default desktop environment that was used on most Linux. Back in 2011, Canonical, the company that makes the world's most popular version of Linux known as Ubuntu, decided that they wanted to take a more cohesive approach and design their own desktop, and so they created Unity. And yes, you heard that right. They wanted to create one cohesive workspace, so they branched off from what everyone else was doing and created their own thing called Unity. Unity is a desktop environment that is used, with very few exceptions, only by Ubuntu. And so for the last seven years, Canonical has been marching to the beat of their own drum. And at the same time, all other major Linux vendors, also known as distros of Linux, have at least been offering GNOME as not making GNOME their default desktop environment in the case of like Red Hat and, and Fedora. The notable exception of that being, you know, SUSE, who uses KDE. Now, is this a good thing or is this a bad thing overall? And I'd love to get your questions on this one 855 no That's one 855 
that question, the question that you're asking yourself, is the question that I have been asking myself most of this week. And uh, and again, so if you have an answer to that question or you have a question, uh, I would love to uh, I would love to hear it. Now there are two design philosophies when developing anything. Okay, the first is the what I'm going to call the jack of all trades, master of none approach. Now, that is the approach in which a company makes a decision on everything, even if they're not experts in each and every individual field. The upside is that the right hand is always talking to the left hand. And so you arrive at a very polished project where every little piece was designed with every other little piece in mind. And the notable example of this is, of course, Apple. The downside to this approach is interoperability is poor. If I want to use my Apple device on anything that isn't Apple, it's often a struggle. It's designed to draw you in to Apple's world and keep you there. Now, if you want to buy only Apple devices for the rest of your life, and you want to have a company that makes the design decisions for you on what features you can have, what software you can have, by all means, that's, that is the way to do it. The other design philosophy, and the one that I personally subscribe to, is the modular approach. Now, in the modular approach, that is how Linux itself was designed and used. We find individual experts, the people that know their little pieces of the puzzle better than anyone else in the world. And we collect all those little pieces together and we, we amalgamate them into a single operating system. In the case of Linux, Linux. So, for example, we have the guy that knows more about file systems than anyone else on the planet. And we take his file system and that becomes the file system on Linux. We find the team that has made the best display server out there. We take their project and we make that the display server of Linux. Now, the downside here is that not every project is aware of what every other little project is doing. And so from time to time, you may run into weird little, we'll call them glitches, but they'll be worked out fairly quickly. Um, but it is something that wouldn't happen in the jack of all trades approach. Uh, let's see here. Anyone want to talk about, we got a couple questions, but nobody wants to talk about the canonical thing. We'll take a question. Um, all right, let's go to Chaz in New York. Chaz, you're on the Ask Noah show. Hello. Chaz, are you there? Hi. Hi, Chaz. Uh, how are you? Yes. Sorry. Heard a little beat. How's it, how's it going? Excellent. How can we help today? Well, um, I actually did have a comment on the canonical thing, and I had a question about evolution as well. So uh, take your pick as to which one you'd rather have, or if I can do both right now, or... Um, well, I'll tell you what, let, let's, start with the canon, let's start with the canonical story. Sure. Um, so I'm wondering your thoughts on what this does for people who are going to switch to Linux or are interested in switching to Linux for basically the next year. Because in my mind, what's going to happen is people are going to want to switch to Linux. Their initial gut reaction is going to be to go to Ubuntu, since that is the most popular distro. Mm -hmm. Um, and they're going to go through the next year or so using either the LTS or perhaps 17.04 uh, or 17.10, mm -hmm. and then they're going to have their head turned on them upside down because they're going to go into a completely new desktop environment. Right. So I'm wondering, I mean, 
Do you think that people are going? We're going to see a mass adoption of the Ubuntu GNOME project, or do you think that uh, people are going to be looking more into Ubuntu or Ubuntu Mate or anything like that? What do you think this is going to do to, uh, you know, going on with uh, people switching to Linux in the near future? Well, I tell you what. I, I'll start with this. I think that in response to your, to the first part of your question, where you said, "Are people going to get their heads turned?" you know, upside down when all of a sudden they go to update and everything just automatically changes. I I think that's a can that we have been kicking down the road for a couple of years anyway. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. Right now, a lot of people start on Ubuntu, but I rarely see people end up there. Most of the people, the desktop day-to-day -day users, the big companies, yeah, those guys are still on Ubuntu. A lot of the really in-depth technical people that got involved with Ubuntu because they wanted to push the Linux desktop, they wanted to see how far they could take their computer, those people don't stay on Ubuntu. Those people wind up on Arch. Um, you know, or, or not just Arch, but they, they wind up on some other distro that is tailored to the, their taste. And, you know, it's kind of how I started the, the introduction to the program. We all have various preferences. And so, you know, Ubuntu is a really great starting point. I think that there are a lot of niche distros that then fill um, you as you grow as a Linux user. <clears throat> so in that respect, we have been we have had people's worlds turned upside down all the time when they leave Ubuntu because they usually can't take Unity with them. There are some hacks to make it work on other distros, but for the most part, Unity is a Ubuntu-specific desktop environment. Does that kind of make sense to you? Yeah. Um, okay, uh, sorry. So you had, a, you had a second question about evolution? Yeah, so um, uh, your, um, the situation you kind of just outlined is my situation Um in a nutshell, started on Ubuntu and then moved to Antrigos. It's like I've been doing this um, for a while, huh? And right now you... Yeah. So um, uh, Antrigos is currently running with the GNOME uh, desktop, since that's the new king of, Ubuntu, of uh, Linux desktops. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was setting everything up this weekend because I did a new install, and uh, one of the things I do is I maintain an open PGB key, just as Great. kind of a hobby, kind of a SHTF situation type thing. Great. And I noticed that it uh, it imported a little differently this time around than I'm used to. I tried to do it through the Seahorse application, and I got some sort of error that um, uh, it said it couldn't be uh, imported. I stupidly didn't screenshot it. Sure. Um, but what I actually ended up having to do was download Thunderbird, install Enigma, where I noticed through their key management page that... Uh, I already had my public key imported somehow, mm -hmm. but my secret key hadn't made it in. Okay. The secret key eventually did make it in through Enigmail, um, and then I just noticed some additional quirks. Uh, if you go to the security page of the account editor on Evolution, you'll know that there's a drop-down menu where you can yep. select the keys that are on your computer. Yep. That drop-down menu is actually non-functional. I still have the ability to type in my key ID manually, mm -hmm. and as far as I've tested, which is basically to contact one of those bot email accounts. It's still working. I'm just kind of interested that it uh, went differently this time around, and I'm wondering if there's anything I should do to my key, aside from create a new one, because I've already had people sign it and so on and so forth, just in case I have a catastrophic arch failure like Chris did a couple LASs ago. Sure. Well, I tell you what, I, I guess I would start with this. The first thing I would say is I would not uh, get rid of my key until after I've had a chance, uh, I wouldn't get rid of my key until I've, after I've had a chance to troubleshoot. Now, as far as troubleshooting, what I would do is I would go to a website called secure-my-email.com. And I, you said you were using Evolution, so I would go to secure-my-email.com slash clients 
uh, underscore evolution.php. That's a, that's a direct link. And we'll have that link for available for you in the show notes. And they have a step-by-step um, how to get OpenPGP to work uh, with evolution. And I've, I have gone to that site uh, a number of different times and I've never had their guides fail me. So I guess that would be my first step. If that doesn't work, then yes, I guess what I would do is I would go ahead and, uh, and regenerate a key. Um, you know, that, I mean, on the, the, the nice side of doing that is then you, if on the off chance your pro- private key has been compromised, I guess you get a, a new start. James is with us from Pennsylvania. Hi, James. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hi, Noah. Thanks for having me. How can we help um, today? I, uh, one real quick comment about Unity. Um, I actually, I'm a, uh, a technician for a living, and a lot of my life has been spent in Windows. Um, and I'm definitely more of a traditional desktop person. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, starting with Windows 8, and I guess 10 has gotten better, but starting with Windows 8, um, I really thought that went downhill. And I wasn't a right. Unity fan. Right. So I'm, I'm actually very uh, excited about, about that change. And I'll be curious to see if they, uh, if they try and stay with where GNOME 3 is right now or if they try and um, kind of go back to a more traditional desktop where you use more of the desktop surface. I think that, and I've said this numerous times in the various programs I've been on, I don't think that you can take a desktop operating system and optimize it for a tablet or touchscreen, you know, uh, phone. And I don't think you can take a operating system that works very well on the phone and scale it up to work on a desktop. On a phone or on a tablet, I have limited desktop real estate. I have 10 inches tops, probably, if we're talking tablets, and really more realistically, 5 inches. And so the kind, the size of buttons I need, the layout of, of that needs to be vastly different than if I'm working on a 4K 32-inch display with a trackball mouse that I have, you know, extreme levels of precision. So I've never been a fan of trying these, uh, you know, trying to make everything touch-friendly. I think it's kind of silly. That said, I think that the GNOME team has a vision, and I think they have invested in a given direction. And I don't necessarily see, even with Canonical coming on board, even with Ubuntu coming on board, I don't see them drastically changing the direction they're going with the desktop. I think that that your niche, the, the, the people like you who want that more traditional desktop feel, I think those people are going for Ubuntu Mate. That is a very traditional desktop layout, and I think that's typically the way... Um, th- that's typically geared towards people like you. Have you tried Ubuntu Mate? Um, I have. I've m- I've messed around with a bunch of them. Um, set up a bunch of VMs, just trying different ones. Um, and I like Entergos. I've tried that. I, I'm I'm thinking at this point Mint is probably what I'll start with. So I've been kind of. In fact, this is kind of the root of my question. Um, I've been trying to, uh, as much as I can, instead of just jumping whole hog in, try and match up the software that I use. Okay, what's the good, what's a good Linux equivalent or a good way of getting that done? Okay. Um, and it's, it seems like Mint, everything just basically works in Mint. Um, I do have Entergos on a laptop. I really like that, too. Um, and it, I tell you, right now is the right time for me to make the jump. I mean, I've been on Windows for years, and I'm just, you know, like everybody else, tired of the whole mess that, that is Windows. Sure. Um, but do you know of a good program that will let you scan across the network? So I have a, a brother um, multifunction unit mm-hmm. for scanning, printing, and I'm trying to find a program that will let me do scans across the network. 
Okay. Well, I tell you what, there's, there are two ways I would approach this. The first way is the, um, is if the brother can directly scan to a share. So for example, many multifunction machines nowadays offer the ability to scan to an SMB or SIFS share. So I would look at your owner's menu and see if that particular model supports that feature. That's going to be the easiest way to scan, you know, across the network. The other thing you can do if that, if that doesn't work, the other thing you can do is you control it via software and you can scan and, and simply save to a network location. The software I'd recommend for that is a software package called Xsane, X-S-A-N-E. And it is one of the best scanning programs out there for Linux. I believe it still supports, uh, you know, um, uh, OCR, as well as you can scan to things like PDF or, or just a plain image. It's a really great piece of software. Works with basically any brand of scanner as long as that scanner is compatible with Linux. Um, I've notoriously had problems with uh, Canon equipment on Linux. HP tends to work very well. Brother tends to work very well. So that would be kind of the... That would be kind of the direction I would go. Elijah is calling from Idaho. Elijah, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah. Thanks for taking my call. So I've got a question for you. Do you think companies like Dell and System76 are going to be questioning their commitment to, commitment with Ubuntu with Canonical making these choices? And also, why do companies use Ubuntu and not, like, Fedora? That's a great question. Um so first of all, do I think that this is going that this change is going to affect their decision? No, I don't, and uh, I I don't think so for a couple of reasons. First of all, hardware manufacturers are rarely they rarely care what decisions software manufacturers make as long as those software manufacturers make decisions that ultimately their end users are are, are pleased with, right? And if you look at what Canonical has done, this right. is kind of where we were getting to uh, in our discussion is. Is is this decision to move to GNOME a good decision or a poor decision? I think it's a great decision because now you have the largest company shipping Linux all working on it, except for SUS, working on the same cohesive project. And I think ultimately that is going to lead to a, a very refined and polished desktop environment. I, I don't think you have a refined desktop environment on Windows 10. I think it's they reinvent themselves every time they create a new version. They irritate a lot of people along the way and they don't really bring any value to the Windows operating system, and Mac OS is basically still using the same desktop environment they were 30 years ago. They really haven't, there is no innovation. In fact, most of the people that use Mac OS use it because they want a simplistic desktop environment that they learned 30 years ago and they just don't want to give up. So I think GNOME is perfectly situated um, to really push the desktop forward. So, And I think by extension then, that is going to make their hardware partners very happy. The Register, headline, staff, projects, uh, staff Project Shed as Ubuntu Maker Canonical tries to lure investors. Unity staffers who couldn't be found suitable jobs elsewhere in the open source shop are being let go. Jobs are also going in other parts of the organization. The cuts came after Canonical founder and millionaire Mark Shuttleworth decision to seek potential outside investments. These investors determined that Canonical was overstaffed and that some projects lacked focus. Sources told the Register that Shuttleworth asked each canonical department to lay out their best, neutral, and worst-case scenario for business in the wake of outside funding. In the best-case scenario, departments would suffer a 30% headcount reduction, but in the worst case, it was closer to 60%. It's not clear how many staff have gone, but canonical is believed to have a workforce around 700. Okay, so, as of right now, canonical is a private company. 
And they have been a private company since 2004 when Mark Shuttleworth founded it. But he makes some very interesting comments in this register piece about going public. It says here, and this is direct is a direct quote from Mark. If we are going uh, to take outside money and go public, how efficient do we need to be? In a very cold commercial sense, we have to bring those numbers into line, and that tends to be headcount changes. One of those pieces I could not bring into line was Unity. Translation, Unity was not going to amount to a profitable venture for Canonical, so they were going to let it go. Now, according to the register, after making that comment, he then downplayed taking Canonical public and told them that it was just a quote-unquote exercise to get Canonical in a position where it was attractive to investors. But my question is, and the question that you're probably asking, why the heck would you care if Canonical is attractive potential investors unless, in fact, you're going to take the company public? Now, but wait, there's more. Pharonix headline, Mark Shuttleworth reportedly returning to role as Canonical CEO. There's a big meeting going on today at Canonical regarding changes being made at the company. This follows a dramatic news of Ubuntu dropping Unity and switching to GNOME. There's now information being obtained that Mark is planning to reprise the role of CEO. Now, this all says to me in spades that Canonical is going public. They want a leader with experience. They want someone with vision. And if they can have someone with those qualities, then they can have an approach. Then they can approach investors and they can say, look at us. We already have dominance in the cloud and in the server ecosystem. Now we're ready to stop working in an area where, frankly, we had no real chance in penetrating, that is mobile, and get back to what we do best. And that is, of course, servers in the cloud, Internet of Things. And I think there is a huge void coming up in the personal desktop market. And I think Canonical is very well situated to fill it. Now, does that make you nervous? Does it sound like they're going to be focusing on the cloud and the server and leaving the desktop users behind out in the, in the, in the cold? Not exactly. And I'm going to get to that in a moment after we take our next caller. And he is, uh, this is Jay from Germany. Hi, Jay. How are you? Hi, I'm quite fine. Noah. I wanted to ask which monitoring solutions you prefer, Isinga, Nagios, or maybe something else. <laughs> um, okay, so I will tell you right off the bat that this is a, uh, as you're probably aware before you even call to ask, this is a heated uh, subject, right? Whatever answer I give you, there's going to be 10,000 people out there that are going to tell me it's the wrong one. They're going to tell you what they prefer, right? Yes. So okay, we'll just we'll just we'll just, I'll just put that out there. But the uh, to, to answer your question, if I was monitor if I was monitoring a server, a cluster of servers, what would I go with? Nagios. Why would I go with Nagios? Because it's very well known. It's very well used. In fact, there is an excellent demonstration of Nagios being used to manage a bunch of machines uh, for a wireless ISP in Washington. That's on the 10th anniversary of the last episode. You can go back and watch that. There's some great video footage of, of how they're using Nagios and how well it's working for them. It's, it's been, uh, it, it's pretty terrific. So I would, uh, I would check that out. All right. So back to this, uh, back to this Ubuntu story. Uh, OMG Ubuntu headline. What's next for Ubuntu desktop? Mark Shuttleworth shares his plans. Canonical will invest in Ubuntu GNOME with the intent of delivering a fantastic all-GNOME desktop, Mark says. We've been helping the Ubuntu GNOME team not create something different or competitive with that effort. And while I'm passionate about the design ideas in Unity and hope GNOME may be more open to them now, 
I think we should respect the gnome, that gnome's leadership by delivering gnome the way gnome wants it delivered. Now, Chris and I had had discussions in the past about what direction Canonical is going to go with this, right? Because there are some really cool features in Unity. Are they going to take those features and bring them into GNOME? It sounds like from this OMG Ubuntu piece, they are interested in submitting some ideas to GNOME, but ultimately they are not going to heavily modify GNOME. They are going to ship it the way the GNOME team decides that GNOME should be delivered. That, that to me, speaks a, a lot of volumes, and it also speaks a lot to Mark Shuttlesworth's character, because he is he has a belief of how a desktop should be delivered, and yet he's willing to check that belief to accept the Linux model of doing things, and that is the desktop environment people get to decide what the best way to deliver a desktop is. And if you take away that autonomy from the desktop people to design the best way to ship a desktop, then you start to get away from the competitive advantage that Linux has. If, you know, this, this, is, this, is, this is the very reason why I say this is a net positive. This brings us to a very interesting intersection in the tech space. The GNOME team, uh, the, uh, the article goes on to say, the GNOME team can and will continue to do a fantastic job. We have the most passionate GNOME people in the world working on the GNOME desktop, and Canonical can only add value to that. Um, Apple is slowly killing off the MacBook and Mac Pro series. They are turning them essentially into iOS devices. Windows is killing the desktop, albeit unintentionally, with the mess that is Windows 10. I have yet to meet somebody that really likes Windows 10. In fact, I'll add to that, I've yet to meet somebody that really liked Windows 8. Most people out there use the latest version of Windows because they are required to, to get their support from their company or the support of software vendors. There was a time back in the Windows 90... 5 Air, 98 NT, where every upgrade of Windows brought significantly new features. They kept it similar enough that you could find things, and the overall experience was just better. The only real upgrade we had after Windows 2000 was probably, I'd say, 7, and now they are trying to kill that by forcing everyone to upgrade to Windows 10. And you mark my words, I'm going to go on the air and say this. Right now, I believe that Microsoft is on a path to sell software as a service. So in a couple of years, you won't buy the next version of Windows. They'll give you Windows for free. It's just you're going to pay like a licensing fee or whatever to continue to use, you know, the software within it because they are, they are, they are bleeding left and right. In fact, we have a saying around here at the shop. We say Windows software so good that it comes pre-installed or no one would use it. Now you have the biggest Linux vendor that is going to share the same desktop environment as companies like Red Hat, who had North of... 2 billion, that's a billion with a B, $2 billion in revenue in 2016. Are you hearing me? A $2 billion Linux company and the company with the most popular Linux distro are pooling their resources and putting them into a single desktop environment. That's huge, people. That is huge. From a purely technical perspective, GNOME is a superior desktop in every metric that we have compared to macOS or Windows. What we need, what we have a need, what we've needed for a very long time is a company that has the ability and desire to produce a version of Linux for the end user on their desktop or laptop. Canonical has delivered on that for years. Canonical started out, Canonical got their start, got their original publicity 
from de delivering Linux for human beings. The reason that Canonical was successful early on was because they were the first company to say Linux can succeed as a home user you know, for a, for a 60 year old woman that just wants to browse the internet for a, for a five year old child that just wants to play some games, Linux can succeed there. Linux has succeeded there. And Canonical took that vision and continued to iterate on it and improve on it and make better on it until they kind of got lost with mobile. First, it was, they were going to deliver a TV. Then they were going to deliver a, you know, a mobile phone experience. And it was a tablet and it was internet of things. And it was all of these other things other than the desktop. And the interesting thing is, during this time, while Canonical is focusing on all of these other various things, th this huge void popped up in the desktop ecosystem. And when I say desktop, I mean desktop or laptop. We've needed this for a very long time, and I think we are, we are finally in a position where we're going to get it. Where Linux has historically been slightly behind the curve is software availability. And that typically is what we see keeping people off the Linux ecosystem. I need my apps, I need my apps. I've heard that sentence over and over and over again. I have had people that are unwilling to even try Linux because iTunes isn't available on Linux. I have had people unwilling to try Linux because Microsoft Office isn't available on Linux. Now it's not that we don't have music players, we have music players. That's ridiculous. Of course, we can play our music on Linux. It's not that we don't have an Office suite. We have an Office suite. In fact, I like our Office suite better than I like Microsoft Office. We have all of those things. We can accomplish all of the same tasks that you can accomplish on Windows or Mac OS. We just call them different things, and they function slightly differently, but all of the core functionality is there. So I call this a social problem. It's not a technical problem. It's not that the code that Microsoft writes, they couldn't write code that would execute on Linux. It's not like Adobe couldn't port a version of After Effects over to Linux. That's not, that's not the case. It's they choose not to. It's a social problem. You know what makes tax software for Windows and Mac? Microsoft makes, um, you know, software for Linux and Mac. It, Intuit isn't making a Linux port. Microsoft isn't making a Linux port anytime soon that I'm aware of anyway, but the landscape itself is changing. Because, in fact, Intuit is moving towards web-based software. And while they don't necessarily, they didn't necessarily target Linux, in 2017, you can actually do your taxes on Linux. And even Microsoft, with their Office 365 offering, makes software that runs on Linux flawlessly, at least for the two times that I've used it. So, I, I really think that Linux is ready for prime time to fill the operating system void. All right, let's go to the phones here. Who do we have here? We have Bob, Fargo, North Dakota, 70 miles south of here. How are you, Bob? Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Oh, not bad yourself. Doing excellent. How can we help? So I listened to your discussion about the Linux um, operating system for desktops having a strong chance right now. And I really have to ask, how does that fit in with, um, you know, Chrome OS's prevalence? I mean, their sales are some of the highest we've ever seen in the marketplace. Yes. I know it is Linux-based, but it's much more closed-source than I would like. Absolutely. And, you know, you're onto something because the number one selling laptop right now on Amazon.com is the Chromebook. Chromebook. The Chromebook. That is the number one selling laptop. My child goes to school, and they give them Chromebooks. Chris's kids go to school, and they give them Chromebooks. I worked at an office where they use Chromebooks up and down throughout the entire system. And here's kind of what I think where the Chromebook fits in. I think the Chromebook offers all of the function management functionality that Windows had 
for years and that IT administrators have come to love with the cost with a, with a price tag that's very, very competitive to the people up in management making the decisions. And so I think that a large portion of people are going to fall into Chrome OS devices. And I think it's a very competitive offering. However, unless the software is web-based, unless the software actually works with Chrome OS itself, obviously you can't run it, right? And so there are a couple of areas where Chrome OS just falls flat on its face. One is photo, uh, real photo editing, any sort of graphic creations, that kind of stuff. You have a, a couple little Chrome apps, but for the most part, you can't do a serious photo workflow on Chrome. You can't do, as far as I'm aware, any real video editing on Chrome OS. And so for the, I think there's, there are some gaps and some voids in that Chrome OS. Here's where the, here's where if you. Um, one question I have though, is that, you know, as you were going just a moment ago about, you know, grandparents and stuff, they just need to check their Facebook and things like that. I feel that if that is one of the Linux's greatest market shares, usability to this licensing and everything else, if Chrome has already sort of eaten their desserts, that's a difficult change to go, hey, let's go to Ubuntu now. I think you're going to have a very hard time getting that that person, that elderly person that's just checking their email or just checking, uh, you know, just watching some videos on YouTube, checking Facebook. I think you're going to have a very hard time making a compelling case for using Ubuntu if they're already on a Chromebook. I agree with you. I think that's I think that's a I think that's a very I don't I think it's a niche market, but I think it's a very large niche market. And I think you're right. That solution fits that market very, very well. But also, but here's another thing that Chrome OS does. And I watched this happen in an office and it was very enlightening. Chrome OS resets the expectations. A lot of people won't look at Linux uh, if they've already been using Windows or Mac OS because they see it as going backwards. They see it as regressing. I can do less things. And part of that is because there's no one big recognizable company behind Linux, right? And the, the thing, like if, so I'll give you an example. If Apple tomorrow released Apple Linux and released a device that used Apple Linux, everyone would use it. It doesn't even, I don't even have to, you don't even have to tell me what the device can do. I can just tell you that people would buy it because Apple stamped their name on it and sold it. People would buy it. That is kind of what we've seen true with the Chromebooks. It doesn't matter that it's basically just a web browser and a $200 computer. Google says, put their name on it and said, here's a computer that we are offering and we're saying is a good idea if you just need to do basic web things. And people went, oh yeah, I guess I do just need to do basic web things. And if Google's offering, it can't be bad, right? And then they bought it and then they went, oh yeah, you know, turns out I can get 90% of my work done inside of a Chromebook. And I watched this massive office, which does, it's in three different locations and they have computers all over the place. But turns out all they do is edit spreadsheets, edit documents, and do web conferencing. And you know what Chrome OS is really good at? Doing spreadsheets, doing word processing, and doing teleconferencing. It's excellent at all those things. And so at a very low cost, they are able to have a very high-functioning uh, office that has world-class communications. It, it, you know, it's quite incredible when somebody sits down in the, the conference room at one of their offices and they say, hold on one second, we're going to go ahead and conference in this other office. And they click a button and the TV comes on and the, this this Chrome device that is sitting above the TV connects and the office on the, uh, you know, 90 miles away, their TV turns on and their Chrome OS device connects and all of a sudden the conference is connected. And it, you know, it really says something. I mean, there was a time when we were installing Cisco equipment, you would have paid I don't know, $15,000, $20,000 to have a teleconferencing system like that. And here Google is giving it away for, you know, 500 bucks. So I, I definitely think that it, it that them putting their name on it has reset people's expectations. Here's how that benefits Linux. Because everyone's asking, how, how, how is that? You're making a great argument for Chrome OS. No, how does, that sell, how does that benefit Linux? Well, it benefits Linux because as we reset our expectations for what the computer can do, if I started out on Chrome OS and now I tell somebody, 
This can do everything that Chrome OS device can do because it can run Chrome. But in addition to that, you can install this free piece of software and you can edit your photos. You can install this free piece of software and you can edit your videos. You can install this free piece of software and you can do, you know, XYZ, whatever XYZ is. Now you've reset everyone's expectations and Linux can deliver above and beyond what everyone's expectations are. And what Chrome OS did was it forced people to truly evaluate, can I live without the Microsoft Office you know, of the world. And the, the answer to that question is unquestionably, yes, Google Docs is capable of doing documents, everything that Microsoft Office can. It just does it inside of a web browser. And once you get past that barrier, then you kind of open your mind up to a lot of other things. Hope that answers your question. And thank you very much, Bob, for the call. So uh, going back to our discussion, on top of the landscape shifting, on top of companies moving towards web apps, on top of Office 365 now working on Linux, on top of all that, this overall is a social problem. Software companies could write code for Linux, they just choose not to. So even, and, and you know, it's interesting, when we find companies that are willing to try to dip their toes into water, how do they usually do it? They use, they do it with Wine. What is Wine? Wine is a program that allows you to emulate Windows executables on Linux. And they, it's not technically emulation because they, you know, the name of the program wine, wine is not an emulator, but it's a, it's a way to execute code. And what you find is when people execute code on Linux, even if it is through wine, you find that that code runs better. It runs smoother. It runs faster. We have gamers that measure success and failure in milliseconds, hundreds of milliseconds. And those people have spoken up and said, you know what? This game runs better under Wine than it does on Windows itself. And that becomes even more true when something is truly ported to Windows, or I'm sorry, Linux. When something is truly, when the code is taken and truly designed specifically to run on Linux. We find an, we find an increase in security. We find an increase in speed. We find an increase in stability. Medium.com headline. Open sourcing wire server code. Open sourcing was always part of our initial plan and it took some time to reach this stage. We decided to take the open source path because of transparency and community engagement is of utmost importance for any product that has security at its core. The team is now taking steps to also allow open source the wire server code, the wire app client code, encryption protocol, and end-to-end -end encryption integrations for the API are already available on GitLab. The server code for the server components is being licensed under AGPL and can be used according to those terms unless otherwise specified for third-party components. In the long-term future, there will be a self-hosted version of Wire that optionally federates with the main Wire cloud. Now, a lot of you that listen to me know that I am a very big fan of the Messenger app Telegram. And one of the things that drew me to Telegram very early on was the fact that the client was open source. So that meant I could get Telegram working on my desktop. People could compete to make the best Telegram app. It actually worked on every major platform, iOS, macOS, Linux, Windows, Android. But from day one, the source code for the server has been and continues to be, as far, to the best of my knowledge, Close source. And aside from a philosophical difference, 
It also keeps certain people that I'm friends with off the platform. I'll go ahead and name drop Mr. Zerock, who refuses to talk to me on Telegram because the server code isn't open source. And he's very upfront and honest about the fact that he wouldn't run a Telegram server if the server code were available anyway. It is simply due to principle that he won't lock himself into a platform. And I have to say, I have a lot of respect for that. And I have a lot of appreciation from that because I myself have had the rug pulled out from under me when doing business with proprietary software vendors. So as these newer messaging platforms have emerged, I have been one of the first people to try all of them to try to develop an educated opinion. Now, I've been using Wire for a few months, and I've also tried Signal, WhatsApp, Telegram, uh, Viber, what else? Hangouts, Duo, Allo. Uh, Did I mention Signal? So I have a little bit of experience with messaging applications. The basic issue is that SMS, or short messaging service, was never really designed or intended to be used the way we use it today. If you think about it, at the time that we were sending messages, when SMS first became popular, we were doing it with 12 keys on a flip phone. In fact, the 140 character limit, uh, here's some, here's some uh, trivia for you, the 140 character limit imposed by Twitter was originally because most phones at the time had an SMS limit of 160 characters. So you get 20 characters for your username, and that left 140 characters for the content. In 2017, we have people in our lives that we only communicate over text-based methods. Say that 10 times fast. So the more whiz-bang features that you can add to those messages, the more clearly and effectively you can communicate across a text-based only platform. Now, I I have experiences all the time where I have a totally different perception of my relationship with somebody else until I actually meet them in person. And that has been particularly evident with JB because, and Chris and I were talking about this, as we go around and we meet people that we think we have a really good understanding of who they are, how they are, sometimes we'll meet somebody and we'll we'll say, that person is totally different than who I expected they were going to be. And I think that's because as human beings, we were just never meant to organically communicate Um, purely over text. I think that the human body has so many, you know, unsaid, communicates so many things unsaid that that it just doesn't work very well. And so one of the things I have always really liked about Telegram was that it incorporated a lot of other ways to communicate. So for example, in, in, in person, if somebody tells you something, that you, that you just want to acknowledge. You can just kind of, you can nod your head. You can give them a thumbs up. You can, you know, you can just kind of, they can just tell, you know, that person understands what I've said that they've communicated it in text. Typically, what do we do? We say the letter K. Well, here's the problem with that, that method is if we say the letter K, if the other person has already put their phone back into their pocket and I send a K to acknowledge that they send a message, it sends off an alert to their phone. Then they got to pick their phone out and they got to look at their phone and to see what? To see a letter K? Well, guys, in 2017, we have read receipts. That is really unnecessary. I know that they've read the message because they get the double check. But sometimes seeing the double check, it's you almost take it the other way. If you're on the receiving end of that, you look at it and you go, well, they saw my message. They didn't even say anything. They're just kind of ignoring me. So that's not really a great system. Telegram allows you to send a thumbs up 
for example, kind of the kind of a great way of acknowledging, you know, I've seen your message without. And I mean, it does still send off a, a push alert, but it's just without actually typing anything. So they allow you to to do things like that. But the big issue um, that I have with Telegram um, was that it required a phone number. It basically requires cellular service. Messengers like Telegram and Wire not only eliminate the need, well, Wire and, and Signal, not only eliminate the need for cellular service, but the ability to have longer messages that the cell phone companies didn't really anticipate that you might want to do. So, and I'll give you an example. Verizon, for example, they help out. If you send a 300 character SMS, Verizon will truncate that SMS and it will send it as three different messages, but on the other side of the phone, it will spit them all out as one message. So, so they do help out a little bit so you don't notice it. But in the case of all of these messenger apps, you're not really relying on on a on a um, on a service provider to do that. the The software itself is doing it. So, where does this take us? Well, basically, all of the things that we do with SMS, Apple has tried to hack on with things like iMessage. We found all sorts of ways to tackle some of these problems. But the difference is. With these new messengers, they are truly platform independent. So you are not locked to any given manufacturer. You're not locked into any given service. It's not like if I cancel my Verizon service, then I go back to a hundred and you know forty character or hundred and sixty character SMS limit. It's not like if I get rid of my iPhone, I get rid of the ability to do group messages and stuff like that. If you're using one of these messenger services that were designed for use in 2017, you have the ability to access all of these features, regardless of what service, if any, and that's an important part, if any, you have. And I'll give you a, I'll give you an example of why I say if any. There are some people out there that have a need for a messaging platform, but don't have a actual phone number. And the notable example of that is my children. I am trying to teach my son how to spell words. I'm trying to teach him how to write sentences. And as a person who grew up not really conforming to the standards of public schools, which is you sit in a grid seating and you write what we tell you to write and we read what we tell you to read and we say what we tell you to say. As a person who kind of bucked that standard as a kid, I have a little bit more understanding for my child when he says, I don't want to sit at the kitchen table and rewrite sentences that mean nothing to me. But what he does have a passion to do is play with his phone and send dad messages, right? And we can turn that into a learning environment. So we have him set up right now with Telegram, and he's able to send me messages. So it started with voice, where he just would send me voice messages. And now as he's learning to compose words and, and construct sentences, he's transitioning to sentences. And we can do all sorts of things with that, right? First of all, I can teach him to sound out words. Second of all, I can. it gives me an opportunity to go back and say, Daddy didn't understand this word, maybe because it wasn't spelt correctly. Maybe if you use this spelling, I would understand what you mean, right? And it's not so, you got this question wrong, and more of, this is a more practical way to do this. So it gave me a learning opportunity. And because of that, I have been watching all of these major messaging platform. And right now, as long as things like a large range of sticker packs isn't a deciding factor for you, and you can get other people in your life to use something then other than SMS, you may consider giving wire a shot. I don't care about those things, but I, you know, I brought it up to a couple other people. And the first thing they asked me is, well, how many sticker packs do they have? Well, I don't know. I don't know how many stickers are there. I think stickers are cool. I think they're kind of fun. It's not, it's not the predominant factor when I'm choosing a messaging platform. In fact, the very fact that the server code is open source and the client sources, the client code is open source and the API code is open source. The, the, the encryption algorithm is open source. All of those things 
are far more important to me than if they have stickers. A couple of things that make it stand out to me, and ultimately why I'm probably eventually going to end up dumping Telegram for it, um, you can sign in with just a username and a password. So even beside the fact that you may not have phone service, let's just say that that's not an issue because you're a grown adult and you need phone service for other things. The username password authentication is a very useful feature. And I'll give you an example of why. Some of you may remember uh, about a year, uh, two years ago, I was out covering LinuxCon in Seattle. And on my way back from LinuxCon, I had inadvertently left my laptop bag at the conference. Now, the laptop bag was perfectly safe. It was with Hotel Security. But the people that ran the conference had left for the night, and I wasn't able to get back in to get my laptop. My cell phone, of course, great timing, broke on the way home. And so I get back to the studio, and I have no way of logging into Telegram. I can't tell my wife that everything went well or didn't go well, or she probably thinks I'm dead. I have no idea. And I, I can't access any of my Telegram messages. And I, the reason was Telegram does token-based authentication. So basically, if you're not familiar with it, what it does is you enter your phone number and it basically generates a one-time passcode and sends it via Telegram message to all of your other devices. Well, if you don't have access to any of your other devices, you simply can't log into Telegram. It also sends an SMS to your original phone, but that was the that was the device I was trying to replace. So it was, it was a real pain. And with the wire, I can just sign in with a username and a phone number. So that's not only nice for my kids because they don't have phone numbers, it's nice for me because I don't need to have access to any particular device. I just need to remember something. That would have that alone actually at that point probably would have switched me. So I would definitely recommend giving wire a shot see what you think of that um and uh and tell me what you think asknoahshow.com there's contact methods there otherwise you can always call me 1-855-450-NOAH-6624 if you have messaging solutions i'd love to hear what you think as far as i know wire is available for android ios and they also have a web app i've not tried the linux app yet um but i i would assume they have one Again, we're taking your questions live here on the air, 1-855-450-NOAA. That's 1-855-450-6624. Now, we are going to take a few moments out of every program every week for people that are just getting started. I, I told you last week that I would craft this show around the listen, around you, the listener, so you guys are in the driver's seat. AskNoahShow.com. There is a web forum there. If you click on that, Join the discussion. You can give us feedback about an episode. You can give us direction for future episodes. And the, the, the feedback that I got was this. The people that are interested in a getting started with Linux video guide, and that's the guy that we mentioned last week, the people that spoke up said they were very interested in it, but there weren't a lot of people that spoke up. Now, I am more than willing to do whatever I have to do. I'll put the hours in if it helps even one person. Um... And so if I don't get any other feedback, we are going to look, we are going to go forward with the uh, getting started with Linux video guide. It will just be, it'll just be a project that will come as, as time and, and, and funds allow. But it dawns on me that I got a lot of feedback that was a little outside the box. And they said, well, I'm not interested in a video guide, but I would be interested in like an ebook or something that I could read. Now, personally, I'm not a big fan of reading and I don't learn very well by reading. I learn much better hands-on or seeing. So my natural gravitation was towards a video guide, but be that as may, 1-855-450-NOAH-6624, if you have another idea of how we can get people started with Linux, give me a call and we'll talk about it. Because 
However it is I can help you guys get started, that's what I want to do. So what we're going to do is we're going to structure the program where we cover relevant news stories and topics for the more advanced users. And then if those people want to tune out towards the end of the program, we'll have a spot set aside for people that are just beginning. Now, if you don't want to call me live here on the air, you can also send an email. Or you can use the contact form, both of which are found at asknoahshow.com. And uh, you can stay anonymous. That was a question I got last uh, last week. You can stay anonymous if you use the contact form. You can just make up any email you want, 123 at 123.com, or you can use Mailinator, whatever. Um, you can go ahead and stay anonymous. We're not collecting details or anything like that. But if you have a question, obviously, if you ask a question, I'm going to answer it here on the air if, you, if, you're, uh, if you're anonymous. Speaking of getting started with Linux, probably the question that I get most asked uh, anytime I go somewhere in person, over email, any of those places, um, I get asked one question over and over and over again. And that question is, what Linux do I start with? Because people sit down to try Linux, and the first thing they do is they sit down at Google and they Google, start with Linux, or where can I download Linux, or how do I get started with Linux? And what they find is, there isn't one Linux. There are a bunch of different versions, or distros as we call them, and so which one do I start with? Well, right now could not be a better time to address this. I've always been a fan of Ubuntu, and for those that are starting out, but now more than ever, it makes sense to start on Ubuntu. Because not only will you not have to upgrade your system to the next major version every five years, yeah, that's if you're using the long-term support editions, they have a LTS window of five years, but the desktop that you start with in the first place is the desktop you're going to wind up on even if you jump off the Ubuntu bandwagon. Ubuntu is the first place that software developers go when they want to develop software on Linux. That's the first place that Valve went to develop Steam. And so all of those things combined have always been a compelling reason to use Ubuntu. The one thing that kind of held me off Ubuntu before was the fact that the desktop environment was different than most other distributions. You basically, if you wanted to stay with that desktop environment, you had to stay with Ubuntu. That, as of today, is no longer the case. So that's a very that's a very compelling reason to not necessarily stick with. Uh, that's a very reason to a very compelling reason to stick for Ubuntu. Excuse me. Elijah is with us from Idaho. Hi, Elijah. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, no, I'm doing pretty good. Hey, so I just wanted to call in and say that you can actually sign up for Wire uh, without a phone number. Um, you just download the client and you choose create an account. Mm -hmm. and you just need to make your name, email address, and password, so you don't have to have a phone number. Now let me st let me stop you right and there. No, let me let me stop you right there for a second. The if I'm not mistaken, the Wire client requires a phone number if you try and sign up on the phone. If you try to sign up through the web app, that you can use an email address. Is that correct? That is correct. If you sign up from your phone, you do need the phone number. But if you sign up on the computer, you don't need the phone number, and right. then you could sign in on, on your phone. phone without a phone number. And that's, for those yeah. of you that are wondering, it's um, app.wire.com. We'll have a link for you in the show notes. And then uh, you said you've actually tried it on Linux. Yes, I have used the Wire client on Linux. I've used it on Arch, and I've used it also on Ubuntu. Um, it's super easy. You can either download the dev, or you can install it from the AUR, and it works flawlessly. works great. 
Awesome. Have you done that on Ubuntu by chance? Yes, yeah. I, I, I downloaded the deb on Ubuntu, and I installed it using uh, GDebi or whatever that program is. Sure, to install. Um, mm-hmm. It installed just just fine. Uh, the app works great. The uh, notifications work just great. Um, haven't had any problems whatsoever. So you know what's interesting is I have you. Uh, you are the you are ham radio, right? Yes, I am. Okay, I thought so. So uh, Elijah and I have have uh, have more than just a passing relationship. We know each other, and um, I believe I have you in my contacts. And yet, you're not showing up for me on Wire, and other people that I have are. So I wonder exactly how. I suppose if it doesn't have a phone number associated, if you didn't sign up with a phone number, and I didn't have sign up with a phone number, it has no way to associate us, huh? Well, um, I I have my phone number in there. Um, I also have my email address, so I I'm not really sure why it uh, it associated Chris and myself. So I'm not sure why it didn't associate us. Yeah, I don't know. That's very interesting. Um, did you? I know you use uh, we'll, you we'll use connect bo- on there. Yeah, that'd be interesting. I know that you use both Ubuntu and Integros or Arch. Have you tried Wire on Arch, and how does that work? Wire on Arch works good. I installed it via the AUR. I used it on, I've used it on Mate and on KDE, and it works fine on both. Outstanding. All right. Well, thanks a lot for filling that in for us. I really appreciate it. I, like I said, I've been bouncing around for, for a couple of different uh, messaging apps, and I've had uh, pretty good experiences on all of them. Ultimately, I think Wire does everything I want, doesn't require username and passwords, has clients available for every platform I use, does video calling, does audio calling. And most importantly, the source code is available, so I can trust the security uh, of the of the software all around. And, and I could I could actually run my whole uh, my own whole server, which is really great. And if you didn't understand what the federated part of that is, that basically means if you run your own server, your server can talk to other people's server, so you can still communicate with people that aren't on your server. Maybe that's a topic for another time. Hey guys, we need your help to get the word out about the show. We need your help to help grow it. Follow us on Twitter at Ask Noah Show. Facebook.com slash Ask Noah Show. Uh, give out that toll-free number. If you run into people in the wild that need help with Linux, if they have questions about Linux or if they want to get started with Linux, give them our phone number. That's 1-855-450-NOAH, 1-855-450-6624. Again, all of the resources you need for this show can be found at AskNoahShow.com. That is the Ask Noah dashboard, as we're calling it, designed by Vizix, Visual Excellence. Our live time is Mondays at 4 p.m. Pacific, that's 6 p.m. Central and 7 p.m. Eastern, and we're streaming live on jblive.tv and, of course, right here on the radio in Grand Forks, KEQQ 88.3 LPFM. If you want access to the show notes, we have links to everything we've talked about here on the air, as well as any products that we talk about. You can find those at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Click on Shows and then choose the Ask Noah Show from the drop-down menu. And I really appreciate all the hard work that the team at Jupiter Broadcasting has done in Seattle. And of course, the team right here in Grand Forks, Logos Radio has done. You guys have been a big help in getting this show and keeping this show on the air. Really appreciate everything that you all have done. And um, yeah, that's, that's basically it. So that brings us to the end of this week's show. We'll be back next Monday at 6 o'clock p.m. Central. Huge thank you to Ben, our producer, Sarah, our call screener, and Rakai, our video editor. We'll hand it off to Crosspoint coming up next on Logos Radio, KEQQ 88.3, LPFM, Grand Forks. <laughs>